The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. I want you to turn me to Luke chapter 14. Most of us are aware of 2 Timothy 3.16. is a really well-known passage. It's where Paul writes, all scripture, that is all written scripture, is God-breathed and it's profitable for three things, for instruct, for teaching, for rebuke, four things actually, for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And it says that that's what we, we, can, we can count on, that the Bible, that the Word of God produces those kinds of effects. It provides that kind of help to us as followers of Christ. It rebukes us when we need to be rebuked. It corrects us and tells us the right way to go. Uh, it, gives, it gives us instructions on how to live the Christian life and so forth, and it's the basis of our teaching or what we believe. So in Luke 14, we have a picture of Jesus here, and what we discover is just like the Word of God, the written Word of God, provides these things, rebuke, instruction, rebuke, correction, and instruction in righteousness, so does Jesus. In fact, we see Jesus here in this passage when he's, he is confronting people about sinful attitudes, and he's correcting them. He's telling them what they should be doing. So I want to read to you, first of all, in, first, in Luke chapter 14, we're just going to look at the first 14 verses. So listen to this. It happened that when he, that is Jesus, went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath, this is the fourth time he's gone to a Pharisee's home to eat. They invited him because they want to entrap him. He went to the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread. They were watching him closely. In other words, they're going to see what he does because they've set him up. They want to have something to accuse him of. And it says, and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Now, dropsy is the closest thing to it today that we would, the word we'd use, it's uh, like congestive heart failure, edema, edema. In other words, this man had a ton of uh, fluid on his system. He could barely move. And, and, they, and he's right there in front of Jesus. This is a setup. If you wanted to set me up to sin, what you do is you put a, you put a banana cream pie on the table. <laughs> but for Jesus... If he's ever in the presence of somebody who needs to be healed, Jesus heals them. If he's ever in the presence of somebody who's dead, he raises them from the dead. Whenever he's in, in the presence of someone who's, who's demon-possessed, he casts out the demon. I was telling my class the other day at the seminary that I was telling about my grandson, Austin, who is uh, 17 now, and he can't walk or talk. And... Uh, I said, you know, I, I don't have any doubt that if, if Jesus was here today and he ever was in his presence, he would heal him. And he would raise him up and give him strength and give him the ability to function in life in a very normal way. Uh, and so this is what they're setting Jesus up for. They're assuming that he is going to do something they can accuse him of. And so... Jesus says to them, this is in verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now this is a, this is a trap because uh, these Pharisees put a fence around the law. They increased the requirements of the law. 
uh, it was clear that if somebody on the Sabbath day, they were not to work to make a profit or anything like that, but if your child fell into a well, you could pull him out of the well. And so he asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? There's this man right in front of him who is in a very bad situation, but they kept silent. And listen to what Jesus did. He took hold of him and he healed him and sent him away. Now that's, that's quite an act of healing because a man with this kind of edema would not be able to move anywhere for quite some time. It would take a while for the, this fluid to come off of his system. He says, and he said to them, that is to the crowd that was there, to the people who were at this, at this reclining at table with him. He says to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. We don't think of a particular place at a table be the place of honor. But sometimes you go to a banquet and they'll have a table for honored guests and that kind of thing. Well, this is how it always was. Every time Jesus was invited to a a, a meal like this, everybody sat in a, the highest place they could possibly sit in order to, to receive honor, as though they're an important person. And Jesus began to speak this parable. He says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you will come and say to you, Give your place to this man, and then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. Now, this was a big deal for this culture. Honor was a premium, and humility was not. But the person in their midst, the person, the the chief guest at this meal, Jesus Christ, was a man of humility. He humbled himself. Now, humility in the Bible, it means to see yourself as a servant. Humility in the church of Jesus Christ is having the attitude that I am your servant. I'm not here for you to serve me. I'm here to serve you. And this is what Jesus said. If you remember to his disciples, he said, even the son of man, that's an honorific title that he had, the son of man. He's the ruler of the kingdom of God. And he said, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all those who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. (laughs) Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
when one of those who was reclining at table with him heard this, he said to him, and this is, he's saying something he thinks Jesus is going to really resonate with. He wants to curry favor from Jesus. And he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. One of the things that the New Testament teaches is that when we make disciples, which is, it is the role of every single believer, we are to be engaged in making disciples. But making disciples is not teaching people a bunch of doctrine. It may involve that because we need to know the truth, but at the heart of it is teaching people how to obey what Christ has commanded. It's really fascinating. In the early church, the catechisms that we have record of in the early church was all about how you live. This is how they catechized them. They would ask them, are you regularly giving to the poor? And what they were doing was they were teaching people how to obey what Jesus had commanded. Now, obedience is different than knowing doctrine. I teach theology all the time, and I love theology, but let me tell you, Becoming a disciple is learning how to walk in obedience to Christ. You may know a whole lot more than you do. But the, the test of discipleship is, am I obeying what he has commanded? And sometimes I've thought of this, well, how would you know all that he commanded? Well, here's one of the places where he taught. He rebukes them. He tells them what they should not do and what they should do. And we are to have an attitude of obedience to the commands of Christ. We are his disciples, his followers. Now, the statement in 2 Timothy 3.16 is about the written word of God, that it reflects, but it reflects the real Jesus. So what Jesus does here, he rebukes them about three things. He rebukes them. You see, Jesus confronts our sins so that we'll inherit rewards for all eternity. It's because of his love for us that he rebukes us. Because rebuke, the word rebuke, actually became a title of a certain kind of counseling, biblical counseling, because rebuke means to face somebody face to face and say, you're wrong. You need to turn from this. That's the hardest thing in the world to do, isn't it? I find that most people, that's the last thing they ever want to do is to have to rebuke someone. Now, we're not talking about telling somebody something that you don't like about them. It's telling them the truth. What has God commanded? For example, in our culture, it's uh, when somebody says to you, some young people say, well, we're engaged. That, That may mean they simply live together. And you would never want to hurt their feelings by saying, did you know the Bible teaches Jesus taught that you should not cohabitate outside the bonds of marriage? That seems that seems so foreign to us. To tell somebody that the way they're living is in disobedience to the the commands of Christ, the one that they claim they serve and follow. But that's what Jesus does here. He rebukes them. He confronts them over their sin so that they can repent and live in obedience to his commands. Now, in this text, it reveals three areas that Jesus rebukes us about. He confronts us. Um... And you notice something here. Jesus accepts this invitation to dinner at this Pharisee's home. We should certainly accept invitations to dinner by, from people who are not believers. But we don't go there just to socialize. We are on mission. 
We're on mission. It isn't to go there and ruin the party, but it's to be an honest, reflective follower of Jesus Christ. And so he's given us, I've been praying this past week for something, it's kind of crazy, but I've been praying that God would cause every member of this church, every person who's a part of this local church, to be forced into sharing the gospel with somebody in this, in this month, the month of January 2018, that you would be forced to share the gospel. Have you ever been forced to share the gospel? Sure. I have. I've been in those situations where I had no plans to talk to this person about the gospel, and yet, because of the flow of the conversation, it became absolutely imperative that I share the gospel with him. The reason I want that to happen is this. I honestly have this conviction that if you ever share Christ with somebody and they respond in faith to the gospel, you're going to discover it is the most wonderful experience in all of the Christian life. There's nothing like watching someone be taken out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. What you will find out, you may not be aware of this, but what you'll find out is when somebody comes to faith in Christ, really comes to faith in Christ, all of a sudden they're going to have this incredible joy, this incredible sense of joy that they have just been brought into a brand new sphere of living that thrills their soul. I've seen this happen with people. They get so full of joy, they can't even explain it. They might say something to you like, I have never been so happy in all my life, and they don't even know why. Why is that? Because turning to Christ by, in faith means that you have just entered into the kingdom of God, and you have received the Holy Spirit, and you have been born again. If you remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a, the teacher of Israel, he's called, which meant he was the highest of the known teachers in Israel, Nicodemus. But he comes to Jesus in, in the cover of night, and he says, you know, we know you must come from God because of the things you're saying and doing. And Jesus says to him, oh, you can't see the kingdom and you can't enter the kingdom unless you've been born again. In other words, your opinion about me doesn't really matter because you can't see reality yet. Nicodemus goes on to become a believer in Jesus Christ. He puts his faith in Christ. He's the one who said to Jesus, how could I possibly, how can a grown man be born again? I'm gonna enter my mother's womb again? And Jesus explains, no, you have to be born of the spirit. It's a spiritual birth. And it's something that is drastically changes your life. So when, you share, when God puts you in a situation to share the gospel with someone, if they come to faith in Christ, you're going to see something that's going to even surprise you. They might grab you and hug you, so be ready. If you have a bad back, you probably should wear a back brace. No, I've seen this happen over and over again. Randy, I just saw Randy here, his dad, when he put his faith in Christ, that's exactly how it was. He was so overwhelmed with joy. He took me and just gave me a bear hug about, I almost passed out. Because he was so happy. He says, I've never been so happy in my life. What do you mean? It's only been 45 seconds. But he was just overjoyed with this reality that he had come into a relationship with God, that he was born again. And I've been praying that every one of you would be forced to share Christ with somebody this month. What a great way to start off the year of 2018. 
by sharing Christ with someone. And I know sometimes it's scary. People get really afraid to even speak up about their relationship with Christ or about the gospel because they're afraid they're going to be rejected or thought not well of or whatever. But let me tell you, you have the gospel. If you're a believer, you have the gospel. It's your gospel. Paul calls it his gospel. He said, my gospel is this. Well, it's also your gospel, if you've believed it, that God sent his son into the world to die for sinners. He died on a cross in our place. He was buried and he was resurrected. And that was God's testimony that he had accepted what Christ did as payment in full for your sin. And by believing that, you come into a relationship with God whereby you are right with God. Isn't it great to be right with somebody? You know how it is if you have a squabble with somebody and every time you see them, you hate to even make eye contact? Isn't it right to be right with somebody? Well, guess what? The God of the universe who created you for himself, against whom we've all rebelled, says, I want to make you right with me. That's why I sent my son into the world to die in your place so that you could have life and be a part of the family and be brought into the family of God. God wants you to share that reality, that truth of the gospel with others. So I'm praying that that's going to happen to you and you're going to discover, maybe be totally surprised of what a wonderful, wonderful experience this is to actually open my mouth and talk about Jesus Christ to someone who doesn't know him. It's it's glorious. It's the happiest thing you'll ever experience. And so Jesus is confronting these people because these are Jewish people who have been invited by this Pharisee who wants to entrap Jesus, who wants to have something to criticize about him. Why are they so against him? John says he came into his own things and his own people did not receive him. But as many as did, because there were a few that did. They were born again. Why did they reject him? Well, he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. See, what they wanted was they wanted a Messiah who would come and exercise political power and to set them free from the heel of Rome, that they would be a free nation again and have no one telling them what to do. But Jesus wasn't a political Messiah. (laughs) He was the anointed of God who came to set people free, truly free in their relationship with the living God. And so these Pharisees want to make him look bad. And so in these first six verses, you see that Jesus confronts our sin of hypocrisy. You know what a hypocrite is? A hypocrite is somebody who wears a mask. They pretend to be something they're not. That's what I... This, is, this word, hypocrisy, was a word that was used by, of actors who wore a mask. If they, you can imagine what it was like if, if you were in a place like this, and you're sitting way back there, and they're putting on a play up here. They would just hold up a mask. If they wanted to show somebody happy, it would be a smiling face. Somebody sad, they'd hold up a sad face. Well, that is where the word hypocrisy comes from. And so Jesus confronts their hypocrisy. Here's a characteristic of hypocrites. Hypocrites study the word for ammunition against others. They come to know things about in the Bible so they can use against others. That's what the Pharisees did. But they don't apply it to themselves. They wanted to condemn Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. 
And Jesus knows exactly what they're doing. They're lurking. They want to see him do something that they can criticize him for. Hypocrites care more about their man-made rules than about people being right before God. <clears throat> there are, there's always groups of Christians, all, there always has been, or has been for a long, long time, there always will be probably until Jesus comes. Who, what they do is they take the scriptures and they turn them into rules that they massage. In other words, they want to make the rules more difficult to keep people from getting to really break the the commandment of God. So, for example, in the Old Testament, it says, this is really something, actually, because uh, Israel has more women in their armed services than any other country, percentage-wise. But there's an Old Testament passage that says that a, a woman should not wear that which pertains to a man. And what that was talking about in the context were weapons. But because of that, in some circles, for a woman to wear, I, I guess the right word is pants, right? Uh, for a woman to wear pants is a sin because she's wearing something that pertains to a man. Why would they come up with a rule like that? Control. It's control. It's the fact that I can hold something over your head, and that's what they were doing to Jesus. They were telling him that he cannot heal do an act of healing on the Sabbath. It's breaking the Sabbath. Jesus is looking at a man who was so disabled he could barely walk, and he's saying, be healed, and he sends him on his way. Because Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath law. The Sabbath law didn't keep you from doing good deeds on the Sabbath. It didn't keep you from pulling your ox out of a, a ditch. It, it permitted... It, it forbade you to live on the Sabbath like you did any other day and work at your making your living. Hypocrites care more about you keeping their rules. Hypocrites bend the rules for their own purposes, but they apply them rigidly to you and to others. Hypocrites often ignore overwhelming evidence in order to persist in their sin. For example, when Jesus confronts them about their pride, you can imagine how offensive this was. But he was getting to their heart. He could see what was going on in their heart. Humility is a characteristic of a follower of Jesus. We're to, we're to, we, are to, we are to submit to this commandment. For example... First Peter chapter 5, God, uh, Peter says, in regards to being persecuted, going through difficult times, they were, they were people who were going through really hard times, and Peter says to them, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What does that mean? It means that you don't think, I'm, why is God allowing this to happen? I'm too good for this. You know, if you have people say to you, why do you think, of God, why do you think God's allowing this to happen to me? You could say, that, that doesn't make me wonder what I wonder about. Why has he treated you so good? It's grace, isn't it? And so Peter says to them, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. How do you do that? By casting all your anxieties on him because it matters to him about you. And so instead of demanding that God get me out of this mess I'm in, out of this difficulty I'm in, 
I'm to humble myself under his mighty hand and say, God, I trust you. I humble myself under your hand. I know that you're in control. His mighty hand is an expression in the Old Testament that refers to the fact that God's in control of your life. He's in control of everything in this world. And so when you go through hard times, you need to understand it's not because God has lost control. Now, we know this from the book of Job, for example. We see Job go through horrendous things. He loses all of his children, all of his livestock. Uh, he's, he, he, it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing that happens to him. But he comes to this. We discover by reading it because in the background we see God's motivation. And pretty soon Job comes to the place where he understands. God's in control. And so Peter says to these believers, when you're going through hard times, this is what you must do. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand and he will exalt you at the right time. He'll bring you out of this at the right time. And he says, the way you humble yourself is you cast your anxieties on him. Now, I don't like that because I like to cast my anxieties before people. Don't you? I want people to know how a horrible thing I'm going through, how difficult this is, why I'm so full of anxiety. Instead of casting them on the Lord because it matters to him about you. Anybody know that song? It matters to him about you, your heartaches. Your sorrow as he cares. It was based on, it's based on that passage. You see, it's really true. I can tell you this. If you tell me I'm really going through a horrible trial, I can say to you, God really loves you. He's manifesting his great love for you in this trial. Now, I don't always remember that. I needed to put that disclaimer on there. It's because my wife's snickering over there. Um, Because we forget. God's word applies to all of us, especially to those of us who teach on any level and preach. Let me give you a couple of quotes. This is John Calvin. He says, it would be better for the preacher to break his neck going into the pulpit than for him not to be the first one to obey God's commandments that he's proclaiming. <laughs> Richard Baxter says, preach to yourselves the sermons which you study before you preach them to others. You know, you've heard that old saying, practice what you preach. Why don't you practice what you preach? John Owen says, a man preaches that sermon only well to others, which, pre which preaches itself to his own soul. If the word of God is convicting to us, then we can tell others. Then we can tell others. So what I'm telling you, I want God to put you in a position where you have to bear witness of Christ. I prayed that for myself. I want to experience that too. I want to be able to share Christ. It seems almost impossible in our lifestyle. We've, we've set up a lifestyle so that we avoid every chance that we might, per chance, be in a situation where we could actually share Christ with somebody because we don't want to be embarrassed. But God is calls you an ambassador of Christ and he's given you the gospel and you've experienced the gospel. And when it's giving you, when you have joy over that, you're going to want to share it with others. John Owen says, to avoid hypocrisy, we all must allow the word to confront our sins and respond with repentance and obedience, not with hardness of heart. Repentance and obedience. Repentance means to change your mind. It means to turn around and go in the opposite direction. That's what has to happen to us when we believe the gospel. 
we're believing one thing about God, which is a lie, and we hear the gospel, and he wants us to turn and enter into his kingdom through this narrow gate, the Lord Jesus Christ, and receive forgiveness. Repentance and faith. When somebody once asked uh, Charles Spurgeon, what comes first, repentance or faith? And he says, that's like asking when John Smith comes to church, who comes through the door first, John or Smith? There are two sides of the same reality. Repentance is us turning in order to believe. Believing is us resting our faith and confidence in Christ and what he's done for us. The second thing he, he does here is he confronts our selfish pride. He confronts our selfish pride. In verses 7 through 11, Jesus turns the tables. Instead of the Pharisees observing Jesus, Jesus starts to observe the Pharisees. But his motives were totally different than theirs. They wanted to discredit him. He wasn't watching them in order to trip them up, but to confront them with their sin and hypocrisy so they could repent and be made right with God. You say, well, wow, this isn't any big deal. I mean, listen to those verses again. In verses 7 through 11, he says in verse 7, began speaking a parable to, to the invited guests when he noticed how they were all picking the places out the places of honor at the table. And he says to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. He says, but instead, when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when you're guest, your host comes, and he'll say, friend, move up higher, then you'll have honor in the sight of all those who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a principle. He who, he who exalts himself is going to be humbled, and he who humbles himself, humbles himself is going to be exalted. There's something amazing about, um, about Jesus Christ and his humility this is the greatest person who's ever been on this earth and walked around and people saw him. He's glorious. This is the eternal son of God who came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness of God could be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. What a glorious savior. And he's telling them, he's telling them what he's done. The reason he tells believers to humble themselves is because he humbled himself. You've read Philippians 2, right? You know what Philippians 2 is talking about, how Jesus humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. He empties himself of what? Not of deity. He empties himself of self. He puts himself in a position to serve rather than be served. This is the God of the universe. And he wants to come and serve us. John 15 is, uh, John 13 rather, is one of the most amazing passages in the Bible where it talks about Jesus having his last supper with his disciples, the reclining at table. Jesus gets up and dresses himself like the lowliest slave, takes a basin and goes around and washes their feet. And I'd like to ask you, have you ever washed anybody's feet? (laughs) Only the women are shaking their heads. Why is that? 
Jesus takes on the role of the lowliest servant because he wanted to show them something. He wanted to demonstrate something to them that what he had called them to do was to be servants. That's what the word humility means in the New Testament. Humility means to see yourself as a servant of others, that I'm here to serve you. In fact, the reason he gave you a spiritual gift, 1 Peter 4, he says, the reason he gave you a spiritual gift is so that you could dispense the grace of God to others, so that you could serve others. And he says that God will give you the strength to carry out that service. He wants you to serve others. I'm really tempted to say, let's take a little break, and, and I want you to find out the need of the person next to you. I'm not going to do this, but I just thought of this. That wouldn't be very fair to you. But if you were to ask the person next to you, how can I serve you? How can I possibly serve you? Who are you serving? Ask yourself that question. Who are you serving right now in the body of Christ? Who is it that you pray for and that you go after and you try to find ways that you might be a, a servant to them? That's a hard question, isn't it? That's what he called us to do. That's, that's what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to manifest to the world. We are a community of servants and we serve one another. We humble ourselves and serve one another. We're not trying to get other people to be impressed with us. We want to serve people. Jesus put that in our hearts and we'll never be happy. I had a young believer the other day that I've been trying to convince that he'll never enjoy the Christian life until he gets in the midst of fellowship with other believers. You can't do the Christian life in isolation. It's impossible. Because the Christian life is all about you serving fellow believers, for one thing. And so he was telling me the other day, he said, you know what? I found out you're right because he'd, he'd experienced this. And he says, I found out you're right. It really is the best part of the Christian life of serving other believers, having fellowship with other believers. Why did God put you in this, in this particular local church? Because we are so needy. Because all of us need others to serve us in Christ Jesus. Sometimes that, that means that we just need somebody to tell us the truth that we're not seeing. Hard to take uh, this kind of uh, conf- confrontation, this kind of rebuke that Jesus is giving here. It's, it makes you very uncomfortable to do this because you're afraid somebody's going to say, well, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Just servant of Christ. That's all. The third thing he he confronts him over is, and he confronts us over by application, is he confronts our sin of using people rather than loving them. Anybody remember that popular song, B.J. Thomas? It's actually, I think he was a part of his Christian stuff. B.J. Thomas, using things and loving people. And sometimes we get that backwards. We start using people and loving things. Well, this is exactly what these these people were doing and so he confronts them it's what we fall into it's so easy to fall into this trap of using people and loving things man I'm so guilty of that so many times <laughs> That's, I, I gotta admit been there done that when you think your stuff is more important than people 
So here's what he says. Notice verse 12 through 14. And he went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers and your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Since they do not have the means, that is God's going to bless you, because they don't have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I love that. When I ran into this the other day about the, the catechism of the early church, and that's one of the questions they asked, are you giving to the poor? That was discipleship, because the early church saw discipleship as people learning to obey the commands of Christ. And so we were to remind each other of the commands of Christ about giving to the poor, for example. People that can't do anything for you at all. It's something Jesus here, he, instead of stopping with just rebuking the guests for their sinful pride, he goes on to rebuke the host. Because he told him, you don't invite people over to serve them just so they can do the same to you. But you, you serve those who can't serve you back, who aren't capable of meeting your needs. Forgive me uh, for uh, telling you this, because Randy's sitting right back there, but um, my grandson, Austin, needs total, complete care. He's 17 years old now. He's almost as tall as I am, but he can't walk or talk. And what, this is what I've noticed, is that he has totally, radically changed this family because they've learned how to love him and manifest the love of Christ in him who cannot do anything for them except smile. That's the most he can do. What's that worth? Everything. It's the most amazing thing that what God is commanding us to do in humbling ourselves and serving one another is the greatest, you'll receive the greatest benefits that you could ever imagine when you learn to serve. When you learn to serve. When you learn to follow the example of Jesus who came into the world not to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. To lay down his life for us. I was thinking about this the other day. Most of us have been in the church long enough. We know what it's like when a young lady uh, gets pregnant and she comes before the whole church to ask their forgiveness. That's what is supposed to be happening, asking for forgiveness, and we're supposed to give it and then manifest the fact that we've forgiven. That's, that's what's supposed to go on. Think about this. How did Jesus come into the world? He came into the world and was given birth by an unmarried girl. Now, we understand. We know what happened. We know what the Holy Spirit did, and we know that he was, it was a supernatural conception and a virgin birth. But can you imagine what Mary went through? Can you imagine what she went through? And, and God brought his son into the world under those circumstances, the most humble of all circumstances, born in an animal shelter, a feeding trough. Isn't that amazing? You see, from the beginning to the very end of his life, Jesus showed us what humility really was. And humility is when you stoop to serve. When you stoop to serve. 
There's nothing like it when you see people do this, when you see people serve one another. It's the greatest encouragement in the whole Christian life is to watch people serve one another. Not for any gain, but just to be fulfilling the law of Christ. That we love one another the way he loved us. And so when we're teaching people to obey the commandments, all that Jesus commanded us, what did he command us? Well, he commanded us to stoop and serve the way he did. That's what he said in John 13. He showed them how to serve one another in humility. It didn't mean that they had to wash each other's feet every day. It meant that they had to humble themselves to be a servant to one another. It is sickening when churches have this kind of thing happen within them, when, when there's pride and arrogance and people thinking that there's... And, you know, little churches like this, there is no power base here. There's no power to be attained. We're just a bunch of lowly believers. You know, it's a town that the, greatest, the great majority, 99% of the entire... 99.9% of the world's population doesn't even know where this is. And so there's no power base here. There's nothing to gain except to serve one another. And isn't it wonderful to watch people serve each other? We ran into Rebecca Hart yesterday at Costco. And uh, she, she has a new baby. It's a little foster child, emergency foster child they took in and they're adopting. And uh, it was the neatest experience just watching her with this little girl. Beautiful little girl. And how delighted she was. Five Children, And she's so delighted to have someone to take care of. I think, isn't that amazing? That's what God's called us to. And so when Jesus uh, is confronting them about this, and it causes us to confront ourselves. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. You know who Charles Spurgeon is. one of the greatest preachers, prince of preachers. Everybody's heard of Charles Spurgeon. He says, my own experience is a daily struggle with evil within. I wish I could find in myself something friendly to grace. But hitherto I have searched my nature through and have found everything in rebellion against God. He's not exaggerating. It's true of all of us. I would much rather serve myself than you. I would much rather do what was advantageous to me than to meet your needs. Sometimes preaching the Bible becomes a little exercise in ego. You want to do it in a way? I want to tell you 15 Greek words here that I know and a couple of Hebrew words thrown in to show you how smart I am. But in reality, what God's called us to do who have to handle the word is to break it and give it to you as a gift, as an act of service. We're to be the lowliest of servants. This is what we've been called to do. And it's what all of us have been called to do. And I, I just want to encourage you, this week, God could use you to share the gospel with someone if you would pray for it. Ask him to put right before your face. If you're, if you're very skittish about this and you hate to talk to people, ask God to put somebody in your face that you cannot help but have to share the gospel with them. And tell them what a difference it's made in your life to be a follower of Jesus Christ and see what he does. 
to encourage people based upon who Christ is. Not who you are, not who I am, but who Christ is. We have a glorious Savior able to meet every need that we have. So let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would give each one of us opportunities to share Christ in our daily lives. Let every one of us experience the joy of Christ as we witness for him. It's such a lofty privilege to be ambassadors and witnesses of Christ, which you have made us. So we pray that you'd open our mouths. You told your disciples they were going to be put in situations that really scared them, but he said not for them not to worry. The Spirit would give them the words to speak. I thank you, Father, that I know how to say Jesus loves you. And he came into this world and died for sinners. And if you trust him, he will save you and give you life indeed. He'll give you a whole new life that's so amazing it can't even be explained. So I pray, Father, please help us this week just to be faithful witnesses and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Bring people into our lives that we can speak to about the Lord Jesus, I pray. Thank you so much for this body of Christ. I thank you, Father, for saving people, bringing them into the body of Christ, giving them a spiritual gift, giving them the Holy Spirit, empowering them to live for you. I pray you'd fill our hearts with joy so when people get around us as a local church, they would say, man, that's a, that group is happy. That's a happy group of people because we have Jesus. Thank you for who he is to us and all that he does for us. We are so grateful. Help us, Father, to be servants of Christ, we pray, by serving one another. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.